SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hello. I have an important question to ask, um, be, and, and it's a question that I've begun to interface with as we enter into, you know, the sort of, you know, 200,000th century of humans. How big is too big for a sandwich? <laughs> oh. I think that a, that a sand that too big for a sandwich is more than twice as much as I can eat in a sitting. But up to twice as much as I can eat in a sitting is a perfect size for a sandwich because I love a moment where I'm like, you know, I'm half done with this sandwich, but I'm done with this sandwich because future me gets a whole sandwich. I think the shelf life of a sandwich, that is a rewarding feeling. But then when you come back to the sandwich... It's not as good as it was the first time. It's just like too goopy. So I think a sandwich is perfectly sized when it's exactly the right size to eat in one sitting. A little, little too much more. And you're like, ooh, my belly, but I have so much good sandwich in there. Mm-hmm. There's a, there is an intermediate bad sandwich size in there where 
where it's it's just a little bit bigger than I can eat in one sitting. That's the worst size for a sandwich. That I like. That I like is when you're like It's a little bit bigger than you can sandwich. eat because then yeah. you f- eat too much. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, I was a bad, bad boy. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you like a little tummy ache? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then you, and then you have a little nap and then you're like, ah. Now I'm back to perfect yeah. sandwich level. Well, I think... And maybe this this is me growing up on the Scooby-Doo cartoons. I think a comically big sandwich is just fine. As big as it can get. If you have a giant piece of bread mm-hmm. and a lot of toppings and can make yeah. a really big sandwich, all you need is a couple more friends or a, oh, the ability true. to dislocate your jaw like Shaggy uh, and Scooby-Doo to yeah. just like, yeah, shove it in, have your head That's- expand to the size of the sandwich and then swallow it. That's if basically we could do what that? I do to a Jimmy John sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Just go in whole. It sucks when a sandwich is too big. Ver- uh... Vertically, yeah. So I don't know why we're doing this. Is on- this is only for aesthetic reasons that we do this. And yeah, it's been yeah. a-, a huge step backward. So I guess too big for me. Length doesn't matter. You could have the longest sandwich Absolutely. in the world and I'd be yeah. happy because... You just find more people to share it with. You slice it up. Everyone has a chunk of a baguette. (laughs) But you're right about height. It has to be narrow enough that if you compress it down, you can bite without scraping your mouth. Because I hate a mouth scrape. Oh, the bread Mm, can't be too sharp also. That's true. The bread cannot be too sharp because I'm got baby mouth Mm -hmm. and I do not like it when my soft palate gets scratched by a really hard bread. Yeah, whereas I'm like a 43-year-old, so it's just leather in there. I can eat anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just just having Cap'n Crunch dry. (laughs) 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 Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up amaze and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem, this week from Sam. For the first time in a long time, I've written myself into an embarrassing position where I'm going to have to sing a song. Oh, yeah. Wait, I'm loading up. Oh, boy. Oh, God, I'm so excited. Listen up, here's a story about a little color that's known as blue. And it's not red, it's not yellow, it's another color called blue. If you look inside and outside, blue the sky, there's a blue robin egg and a blue peacock. And some things are just blue out there, like sapphires and some bodies of water. Because sometimes things are just blue. Here we go. They're blue, something's blue, it's the sky. And there are probably blue flies, blue when you say goodbye. And you can have blue eyes. And if you need to know why, some things are blue because of dye. There's also blueberry pie. <laughs> They're blue, something's blue, it's the sky. And there are probably blue flies, blue when you say goodbye. And you can have blue eyes. And if you need to know why, some things are blue because of dye. Blueberry pie. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> I can loop that one around. <laughs> the topic for today is blue, <laughs> the color blue, uh, and also possibly the emotion blue. And Sari, I, I bet scientists just went ahead and defined what blue was. Yeah. 
uh, much like the green episode, we got we got the blue <laughs> as as we work through the colors, we'll have a definition for all of them. And everyone waffles a little bit on what exactly the cutoffs are between colors, but roughly speaking, blue light, the color blue, has wavelengths between about 450 and 495 nanometers and frequencies between around 620 and 670 hertz. Mm. So in the spectrum of visible light, the wavelength slash frequency that falls between those ranges is the color blue. And uh, it is a it is a subjectively experienced also experience. Yeah, it's, it, uh, I don't know what I don't know what blue is like for you, but I'm guessing it's roughly the same as what blue is like for me. I think it's got to be exactly the same, right? I don't know. We don't know, Sam. We've never we've never had one person go inside another person, so we can't know. My or, my blue could be orange. You'd be like, oh my god, Hank, Hank thinks that pumpkins smell like tuna. But then how would they make scented candles that smelled correctly? It's about the experience. All it's like, right, I, right. Just lo- I just love tuna smell the way that you love pumpkin smell. Okay, whatever. But, hmm. prop, but you're right. Probably everybody's <laughs> the same blue. <laughs> it probably comes down to like the subtle differences. Like how some right. people are better at those color tests than mm-hmm. others. Of like, mm-hmm. range all these hues in order from like whatever the RGB code is along a spectrum. Uh, And there's a lot of pseudoscience about the color blue. At some point, the BBC in a documentary presented an experiment that never happened, which is that a Namibian tribe called the Himba, uh, they, they acclaimed that this tribe of people is completely unable to distinguish what Western society calls blue and green shades that seem like quite distinct and it was just completely made up really it was a it was like a reaction time experiment where they had a color wheel with different shades of blue and green and the participants in the study had to pick out which one was different like of i don't know like 10 squares nine of them were the same one of them was different and it was a little greener or a little bluer and the reaction time was faster when it was all shades of green than when a shade of blue was introduced. But it's not that they couldn't tell it apart altogether. Then there's that thing about like blue wasn't always real. Like ancient Greeks couldn't see blue or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? I think that's kind of like, what Sarah's talking about where there's uh, like, if you don't have the language for it, do you see it or do you just like call it? Because there's there are things like that where there, there are two things that are close together and in like one language it's called they just like call everything yellow, even if it's orange, mm-hmm. um, because they don't have orange. Mm-hmm. But but they can still s- tell the difference between the colors. But Sarah, is there any evidence that you actually kind of start to see different if you have more language around color? Not that I can detect. Yeah. And like maybe that's the experience, like the reaction time. You can see, you can notice differences mm-hmm. better if you have the language to describe it. But like you said, in a lot of pre-modern languages, like words for green and blue were fairly interchangeable, where like sky, ocean, grass were all the same-ish word because they mm-hmm. fell into that part of the, the color spectrum and like greenish blue. And a lot of the pop psychology examples of, I think this is called linguistic determinism. So like it's getting at this idea that if you have language that is more precise, 
and you have to notice the differences between things, then your brain Mm -hmm. might be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But my understanding is that uh, you can notice the differences between things. Like even though we don't, we call everything snow or like we start to get to like slush at some point, Mm -hmm. we can still with more adjectives and with more time and attention tell different types of snow. Like when it's good skiing snow and when it's good snowball throwing snow and when it's like gross and muddy and yucky. And things Mm -hmm. like that. Even if we just call all those things snow. And even though we call a lot of different things blue, we still know that the sky is a different color than the deep ocean, which is a different Mm -hmm. color than a butterfly wing, which is a different color than a flower. Do we know where the word blue came from? Because it's great. Blue! All the color words, they really nailed all the color words. Good, I think. A little on the fence about orange. (laughs) I like orange. It's a, it's a sort of ridiculous thing to make me do with your mouth. <laughs> yeah, it's just like do you want to do you? Do you have to tell me what color a basketball is, and I have to I have to say orange. <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> I think that's a little bit your fault because you could say blue really, really bad too if you wanted to. <laughs> blue, blue, oh, that's fun. Yeah, okay, orange. Orange. That's Orange. kind of fun. Sounds like you're honking a big truck. Orange. Orange. <laughs> um, but blue is weird of the color words in English because it is the only color word that didn't carry over from Old English to Modern English. In Old okay. English, blue was Haywin with various different spellings. But around the time of the Norman Conquest, when the French got involved oh. they were like we've got this word blue and uh, that word simply took over in english it language sounds, it does sound very french it had a lot of different meanings and this is i think where some of that color discussion of like blue didn't mean blue uh where the word blue blue uh in french <laughs> it sounds the same to my little dumb brain mm-hmm. um can mean like discolored or like bruised it can mean dark, like a dark ocean, or it can also mean like golden or fair haired or things like that, like luminous. Um, so there are a lot of meanings encapsulated by this one word. And then over time, I think we just specified that it's like, okay, blue, blue is this particular color. It doesn't That's mean really just shiny things or dark things. It huh. means the thing in between green and purple on the color spectrum. What? Why? Why was it so many things? Yeah. I don't know. Ask the French. Middle French, I guess. The Anglo-Normans, the Norman <laughs> ask, Conquest. Ask dead French people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Practice your necromancy. Gosh, there's so there's so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> there's that scene in the Dungeons and Dragons movie where they're getting people up, up from the dead yeah. and they're asking them questions about how to find the, the MacGuffin or whatever. And, yeah. and I'm like, that looks okay, fun. But like, if you could do this, <laughs> can you do it to like dinosaurs? <laughs> I want to ask a dinosaur ten, three questions. It's like at the Natural History Museum doing necromancy on dinosaurs. Oh, somebody write this short story. Yeah, sue what? the T-Rex, ready to ask, but you only get five. <laughs> this is just Night at the Museum, guys. They already made this. <laughs> no, but like dark. Because yeah, in order to bring, it's a life for a life. So to ask the question, you do have to murder someone. Squish a little bug. Squish a little yeah. bug. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for saving me, Sam. <laughs> All right. And now that we understand that fairly well, we're going to enter the quiz portion of our show. 
So when you think of worms, you probably conjure up images of wiggly little pink worms digging through soil, but it turns out that worms have interesting relationships with the color blue. So for today's Truth or Fail Express, we're going to be digging into the truth of worms and blue. And I'm going to tell you some blue wormy tale, and it's up to you to figure out whether or not I'm telling the truth. Story number one. If you ever wanted to see a worm glow blue, simply waiting for the popular lab model C. elegans to die and then shining ultraviolet light on it will do the trick. Gut granules will shine blue as the membranes that encase them break open, letting them spill from the intestine and through the rest of the worm's body. Blue gut uh, granules. Is it true or false? I've heard a lot of this story before, I think, but I feel like I've heard Deboki talk about because she talks about these freaking worms all the dang time. <laughs> That's Deboki, just a little worm, worm, worms. <laughs> it's also the entire institution of biology. Can't have to shut okay. up about these worms. I think it's true. Okay, Sam thinks it's true. I think it's false. I think it's a different worm. I think uh, as much as C. elegans is talked about, but... Uh -oh. it's not. We only know we're about one worm. Sarah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's it. And all other worms as mysterious that worm's as old oh, French cool people. Worm. So they yeah. weren't sure for a long time why they uh, glow blue under UV light when they're dying. Uh, but they could, because they only do this when they're dying. One hypothesis was that waste, uh, there was a waste product that was found in uh, aging mammalian cells, but it wasn't clear why it would show up in C. elegans. But in 2013, researchers found the source of the blue was actually a molecule called anthranilic acid, which is found in the worm's guts. And as the worm dies, the organelles burst open and release this acid, which then diffuses through the body and they become special blue glowers. Uh, but only, only in their last, death. in their last moments, yeah. it's their ghost. It's their <laughs> soul leaving their body. All right. Story number two. Another way to make a worm glow blue is to threaten a marine parchment tube worm so that it makes its patented glowing blue mucus that can glow for several days. When scientists investigated how the mucus is able to last so long, they found iron complexes that are able to power the blue light. That's amazing. That's if it's true. Cool. I don't know why that's amazing. So I'm going to say it's false. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that seems boring. And I don't know why anyone would care about mucus that glows for days. Iron compounds. It's like a battery. I think it's true. I think it, this is probably one of those geothermal weird guys. And so mm -hmm. they just want to make a little nightlight for themselves. Well, parchment tube worms make glowing blue mucus when threatened, and that glow can last up to 72 hours, oh, which is much wow. longer than bioluminescence found in other organisms. So scientists wanted to understand why, uh, because that mucus is outside of the worm's body and can't rely on metabolic processes for power. And in 2020, researchers reported that the mucus was powering itself with an iron storage protein called ferritin, which releases iron ions when it's stimulated with the blue light, which can then make the mucus make even more blue light, creating a very long-lasting blue glow, which is so freaking cool. So congratulations, Sari. I don't know if these are if, if these are the ones that live at the hydrothermal vents, though. I don't think so. Um, little known fact, they also have a little blue house with a blue window. Oh, um, yeah. And the, the streets and trees are blue as well. And they have a blue Corvette. Every one of them gets their own small blue Corvette. They're a very advanced civilization down there. <laughs> Our final story is of C. elegans. Again, because they don't have <laughs> eyes, 
and they also don't even seem to have cells that are capable of detecting light. And yet, they are able to avoid the color blue, a skill that they put to use in avoiding toxins produced by mats of blue bacteria. Uh, True or false? Again, again, I feel like I've heard Deboki tell most of this story about something that wasn't this. (laughs) So I'm going to say this is false. They don't have eyes and they can avoid something, but it's not that. I want to say it's true. I know there's like cyan bacteria or algal algal bloom mats, which Mm -hmm. I think is close enough to blue to count. So I'm going to say true. Well, indeed, it was true. They were all true. Wow, triple true. What the heck? (laughs) Can't game it. Sometimes we'll have all of them be the same. So a bacteria pseudomonas, I don't know. I think that should be your new microcosmos hosting strategy. (laughs) (laughs) That show is so good, except for that part. (laughs) It's like, I don't know, man. Uh, Microcosmos is hilarious to host because sometimes the things we are saying, we're like the only people who have ever in public said the word. That happens on social (laughs) a lot, too. Makes sense. And it's just like, I don't know. The hosts are like, what do I say? It's like, you can, you, no one's ever even tried. You're defining so the pronunciation of this word right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'll ask and they'll be like, I don't know. I've only ever seen her written down. And I'm like, but you <laughs> study this organism. And they're like, yeah, we don't call, we don't, we don't say its talk, name out loud. We don't loud. talk about it that <laughs> We don't <much>. talk. <laughs> <laughs> Science, we don't talk. Yeah. What do you think? We're on the phone with each other. <laughs> so this bacteria, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, sure produces a toxin that the worms want to stay away from. And it's also uh, that the bacteria is a bright blue color. In 2021, researchers reported that uh, if they turned off the lights, C. elegans were slower to run away from the dangerous bacteria than if the lights were on, almost as if they could see the bright blue bacteria, which was surprising given that these worms don't have eyes or even opsin receptor genes that could help them visualize blue based on anything that we know. So what? the researchers tried various combinations of pitting the worms against the bacteria in the light and dark and against mutated versions of the bacteria that are beige but still toxic. And they found that when the worms faced off against the beige bacteria, the lights didn't affect how fast the worms ran away from the danger. So even though Why? it's not the toxin they were sensing, it's like it's the color somehow. They also found that the worms avoided the isolated toxin when it was mixed with blue pigment. So based on the results, the researchers hypothesized that the worms were somehow detecting the ratio of blue to amber light and avoiding the toxic bacteria. And while researchers found two genes that might be involved in this behavior, the exact mechanism of how the worms are identifying blue and responding to it is unclear. And that is exciting. They see with not anything yeah. that we've seen before. No eye. We, they can see, but we don't know how. That means anything could be seeing. This is when people talk about like alien life in that mm-hmm. operates in a totally different way from us that we can't even fathom. This is it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, how are you detecting blue? We only know so many ways. Whenever I hear about C, like some weird fact like this about C. elegans, it reminds me that there is some weird fact about like that about every organism yeah because we just like we know so much about c elegans and that's but only because they're good at living in the lab and they're fun to study and we studied them a lot and it took us a long time to figure out that one thing about them too yeah we were just like where well they're running away from blue stuff but they don't have eyes so listen up here's the story we're gonna go take a break (laughs) we'll be back for the fact off 
SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my first... basement. It was my <laughs> basement of my own home okay. that I was renting. <laughs> downstairs <Okay>. of. <laughs> If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record. My friends, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow. If there's there's a constant drain on the the bean, that (laughs) is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and beyond I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) 
different kind of bean, I guess. A, a cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans, cancel your <laughs> unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. All right, we're back. Sari has two points. Sam has one. And we're going to... Figure out who's the winner with the fact off. So they got each of you guys got a, uh, a fact to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind. And after the facts are presented, I will judge and I'll award the Hank Bucks any way I see fit. To decide who goes first, though, I have a trivia question. In 2009, an Oregon State University graduate student named Andrew Smith was working on developing a new electronic material. Instead, he accidentally created a blue pigment that has since become known as Oregon Blue. Mass blue for the professor whose lab the pigment was found in, or Yinmin blue. Uh, this last name is based on three of the elements that make up the pigment, yttrium, indium, and manganese. But there's one more element in Yinmin blue uh, that's not credited in the name. What is the atomic number of that forgotten element? And we'll get, get you by who's closer. What is the atomic number of anything? But it's going to be between a one and a hundred. I'll just yeah. tell you that. And it's not okay. going to be one or two. It's not going to okay. be one or two. And it's not going to be, it's probably not going to be above like 70. Very unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you're not, it's not going to be super weirdly yeah. radioactive. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to be like the one of the new Nobelium or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be one of the ones that only exists for a microsecond before. Yeah. Like, Explode. we found out how to stabilize yeah. it, guys, and it's in this and blue pigment. it's blue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that would not be the story that people would write mm, if yeah. uh, they would not. We wouldn't care about the blue pigment if we could stabilize one of the parts. The, the you guys are friggin' dorks. Uh, <laughs> what's like? <laughs> that is the point. Yeah. I'm going to guess first, and I'm going to say 30. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say 36. I don't know. I don't remember the periodic table well enough anymore. It wouldn't have helped. I don't think it's it's <laughs> oxygen. Uh, it turns out oh, so. It's magnesium oh. oxide is tagged on to the end there. Wasn't worth mentioning though. Oxygen. No, well, it's not. I mean, kind of. Yeah, so just doing its little job. And it's eight. So same as the winner. Uh, yeah. but do you want to know more about Yinmin Blue? I would love to. It was the first inorganic blue pigment created in more than two hundred years. Wow. The last one was cobalt pigment. It's very stable and non-toxic. In comparison, cobalt can be poisonous in large quantities, and it also can fade. Uh, in 2017, Crayola created a new blue crayon inspired by the pigment, though it didn't actually use any of it. The color it replaced was dandelion yellow, and it's called mm. Blutiful. Uh, <laughs> the EPA approved Yinmin Blue for use in industrial coatings and plastics in 2017 and for consumer use in 2020. So exciting. Wow. We've got more blues in the world, y'all. Great discovery, Andrew Smith. It's so blue. You should look it up. That's the bluest dang this blue like I've ever seen. This bowl full of it is almost upsettingly blue. Do you want to eat it? Because I no. kind of do. I know it would be very bad for me because it's so metal. Well, apparently it's non-toxic. must be very stable. 
Um, I kind of want to like rub it on myself. But then I you could join wanna. the blue man group. We could join. We could be the new blue men group, but just mm-hmm. Yinmen. The Yinmen. The Yinmen. The Yinmen. The Yinmen. The Yinmen. Yeah. <laughs> We're the Yinmen men group. And we don't play drums though. We just sort of make jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we just all lot. get up on stage. They don't talk <laughs> at all. We talk a lot. Yeah. That's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> we get really tired halfway through because it's just a lot to be up there for that long. It's just a lot. We record at four o'clock. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know how we expect ourselves to do this. Anyway, Sam, you get to go first. When you injure your spine, one of the really nasty initial side effects is that the area around your spine swells up, which can cut off blood, kill cells, and mess up a neurological function even more than the spine injury already did. Uh, You can do things like give patients steroid injections to curb the swelling, but it doesn't really seem like it works all that well. Uh, So basically, spinal damage is bad, but then it swells up and it kills cells and makes things worse, and there's really not that much that anybody can do about it. And the reason for that swelling is because your body releases a bunch of ATP, a chemical that I vaguely remember from high school biology that I guess gives cells energy. It's the powerhouse of the cell, (laughs) right? Okay, anyway. There's so much ATP at the site of a spine injury that the cells there get stressed out and die because they just have too much energy. Uh, and I guess that makes everything swell up. I'm not really sure how swelling works, but I guess maybe like a dead bunch of dead cells makes stuff swell up. Anyway, ATP is the culprit. But this team of researchers had a thought. If you could block the ATP cell receptors in the damaged area, maybe the cells wouldn't die and the swelling wouldn't be so bad. So they fired up the old lab equipment and they did some tests and guess what? It worked. They injected oxidized ATP into test rats and it stopped the swelling which is great. Hmm. But what's not great is that for, I think, a variety of reasons, oxidized ATP injections couldn't be used in real world human medical applications. Uh, And one of those reasons was the whole injection part. So according to the researchers, doctors don't really like to inject things straight into damaged spines. So their idea worked, but it was not practical. But then they thought uh, it might be practical if they could find an ATP blocking compound that could be delivered intravenously. And that's where blue comes in. So there's this blue dye called Brilliant Blue G that's already used in medical contexts, primarily used in eye surgeries, but it also just happens to block ATP. And it also happens to be like the exact same compound as blue dye number one, which is a food coloring that makes all of our favorite blue foods like blue M&Ms and blue Jello and blue Gatorade mix them all blue. Uh, so I sort of wonder if doctors were like, we can't just say that we're using blue food coloring. So we got to think of another name for this stuff. And then they, they decided to call it Brilliant Blue G instead of Blue Dye Number One. So anyway, <laughs> this stuff is really cheap. And even better, it crosses the blood brain barrier. So it could stop all kinds oh of nasty God. brain and spine based swelling. So the team injected some blue dye into rats with spinal cord injuries. And the rats that got the injections fared far better than the rats that didn't up to the point that the injected rats could walk with injuries that totally debilitated the non injected rats. And there is one side effect, though. Uh, and that the blue blue dye is a blue dye. So that the places that it ends up being injected turn blue. <laughs> and if you're a tiny little rat, then you're going to turn into a blue rat for a little while. Oh my gosh, they're very blue. They got these yeah. blue little ears and their blue little nose. But they're feeling way better. They're just blue. This seems wild. It seems wild that this chemical... So it's given intravenously for, for the therapy. Mm-hmm. And apparently we can eat it without it affecting our ATP at all, I assume. Uh, I can have blue Gatorade without having to worry about its bioactivity, which you would think we would have tested for. 
Yeah. Uh, it's a giant <laughs> molecule. Like it looks like a big old honker. My first thought upon seeing it is I wouldn't want to eat this. You probably ate it today. Do you blue and <laughs> Possible. No, but I would like to. I did drink Gatorade today, but it was not blue. I think we'd know by now if something bad happened because of it. And if blue Gatorade cures spinal cord injuries, that's a pretty cool fact. <laughs> yeah. All right. That is very weird, Sam. Sari, what do you have for us? So there's this really lovely grayish pale blue pigment called blue ochre or Vivianite blue named because it comes from the mineral Vivianite, and it was historically used in art from various cultures, including indigenous peoples from the northwest coast of the United States, or in the 12th and 13th century um, in Europe, artists used it as well. And like many natural pigments, Vivianite was mostly used by people who could find and harvest the mineral nearby. And this is where the fact off kicks in, because Vivianite forms under really specific conditions. When something dies and the phosphate in its bones or teeth or cells or whatnot react with iron in a damp environment. So chemically speaking, Vivianite is a hydrated ferrous phosphate mineral. And casually speaking, it's a crystal crust that forms on wet dead things and turns blue (laughs) when it touches air and oxidizes. And if you start poking around archaeological literature, you start seeing these blue Vivianite crystals in all kinds of papers. It's been found on human remains in crusty patches or discolored blotches from the lungs and skin of the Iceman Utzi, the oldest known human mummy of a man who lived between 3350 and 3105 BCE, to the bones of U.S. soldiers who died in a plane crash in the 1960s during the Vietnam War. It's also been found on lots of animal parts, from the skin of a 36,000-year-old mummified Alaska steppe bison nicknamed Blue Babe, uh, because its skin was blue, blue to clamshells and mammoth tusks and all other kinds of biological things. And it's even been found encrusting pieces of decaying wood or other organic stuff, because phosphorus is really important for life. Um, in bogs or ponds or other watery shores that are near deposits of iron, either naturally occurring ores or from human-made stuff like weapons or armor. And on top of being a cool pigment for its rarity and association with dead things, Vivianite can both help and hinder research in different ways, which I thought was weird as I started digging into this. Um, At least one paper blamed it for contaminating DNA amplification and analysis when samples were taken from human skeletons because it binds up phosphorus while others used its presence to glean more context about the environment in which something died because it'll be like moist and boggy or whatnot. So blue finds lots of ways to show up in nature. If not in life, then in whatever comes next. Wow. Wow. This is weird. So when I Googled it, I saw these like beautiful, big structured crystals. But when it's showing up on decaying matter, it's like little, little pieces of Vivianite. But it, but it, it, it happens a lot with decaying organic matter. Yes. Organic matter. Wild. I think so. I think the the name for Vivianite came from just this like UK guy who found it in a cave and probably found one of the bigger crystals, mm-hmm. but it had been known as a substance, as like a blue right. substance and a pigment. So I don't know how much people actually uh, like gathered the pigment itself from dead or decaying things versus finding stones of it and then grinding it up but right. i think it's a mix of both if if i had to take a gander that's so interesting and they found it they found it on etsy etsy what, what, i don't know how to say it. etsy it's like it's like the oh with the umlaut etsy not etsy that the not the online marketplace 
<laughs> could probably get some Vivianite on Etsy as well. <laughs> See, that was a bit that was a bit of a branding problem that we've created with that particular mummified body. All right. So I have to choose between absolutely mind-blowing blue Gatorade injected into the spinal cord injuries of rats. Absolutely mind-blowing minerals that that selectively grow on decaying organic matter. Sari's already in the lead. I'm going to have to consider all those facts all at once. All, all those little pieces of data and just put them into my little calculator brain. Decide who wins the episode of Cypher. I would love to look into your head and see if you're actually thinking about any of this at all. Or if you're just saying yeah. that you're thinking about any of it. Okay. About it. Okay. You're just thinking about your song. There's math Blueberry equations. pie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I think I think that the I think that the Sam fact is so weird. I think it's at least plus one weirder. Then Sari's I, fact. I was on a cold so streak too. I needed this. Sam can get the episode. Thank uh, you. And I'd, I'd also like to dig a little deeper into it and see where we are with this research. Because uh, I think it could make a pretty good TikTok. Yeah. All right. And now it's time to ask the science couch. We've got a listener question for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. James on Discord asks, is there any truth to the supposed notion that blue is a more ideal color for social media platforms or streaming services to brand themselves with? I mean, it's got to be. Because a lot like, of them are blue. For one, true. there's just too many that are blue. Yeah. And two... Uh, it's just, it, I think that we like blue. I think it's, it's I think it's non-threatening. Like Netflix I, is red yeah. and that one's Instagram just is like, uh, is like, is like kind of red, purple, pink, yellow now. Yeah. They're trying to have it always. Is, Threads is just black and white. The hot new social media sites yeah, lighting the world the on fire. Experience Threads. Yeah. I, that might no longer exist. That just, everyone's <laughs> could ignoring be, Could now. be gone by now. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> because we record well in advance. Um, Sari, though, is going to have a much better information on this because I'm just vibing here. Yeah, I mean, you're vibing in the correct direction. I think that's your uh, observation of social media at play. And honestly, I think a lot of marketing researchers are also vibing because yeah. mm-hmm. the research here is, from what I can tell, thin. Uh, <laughs> a lot of yeah, a, a lot of that. websites that like. Uh, say blue is a great color or blue is a super popular color are usually pointing to one of two studies from what I can tell. There is a YouGov survey conducted in 2014 uh, in a total of 10 countries, the US, Britain, Germany, Australia, China, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and Indonesia, guessing around a thousand respondents per country and found that blue was the favorite color of people in all those countries. Um, between 23% was the lowest in Indonesia and 33% in Great Britain was the highest, uh, liked blue the most out of all the colors listed in the survey. Um, and then the second one was a 2003 undergraduate thesis by a kid <laughs> named Joe Halleck. Um, <laughs> what? what do you mean a kid? We just want to be clear. If you, if you are under He's an the adult age of now. 22, you're a baby, little yeah. baby. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's funny um, that everyone is pointing to this undergraduate thesis from this Mm -hmm. guy who's now a grown man and probably doesn't think about. I did not look him up. So I I apologize, Joe, if you're a fan of the podcast and are still like really into color psychology. But your website, great, 
great transparency on where you got your data and everything. (laughs) His initial hope was to get 500 responses across the world. When he closed the survey, he only had 232 results and nearly 80% were from the USA. Mm -hmm. Um, And he asked people to associate uh, colors with different words. And so um, be like, what color do you associate with trust? What color do you associate with bravery? What color do you associate with etc. Things like that. And so blue was the top answer for trust, security, reliability, and dependability. Um, It was the second top for high quality or high technology with black taking the top for that. Mm, Um, And he also found that blue was the favorite color of 43% of everyone that he surveyed. And so a lot of people point to these things and are like, people love blue, but I, we, I don't know. It's hard to survey a large amount of people. Yeah. And I also feel like there's just like a weird, like, do you know, do you even know what you implicitly associate with trust? Like if you, like, if you ask me, am I right about how I feel? I'm more likely to be right than wrong, but I'm also not, I wouldn't be shocked if I ended up being wrong. I don't know. Yeah. People don't introspect into their biases as much. The other bit, there's a, 2011 marketing paper called Exciting Red and Competent Blue, The Importance of Color in Marketing, that found that blue is linked to to the idea of competence. And specifically, they used a brand personality scale from 1997. So there's this idea in marketing of assigning people personality attributes to a brand. And so the, the Acres scale includes characteristics like Sincerity, excitement, competence, sophistication, and ruggedness, and mm. tried to assign some combinations of those traits to mm-hmm. various brands. And so this 2011 paper used mm-hmm. the scale that became very popularized, I think because it's pretty pithy, and then generally found when they tested uh, fake logos of various colors and then asked people to assign these five attributes and like the subcategories of them to them, that blue was associated with competence. And then also when they had desaturated logos of brands that already exist, Mm -hmm. then they found like reinforcing evidence. So that was interesting because it actually has to do with logos and people's gut reactions to Mm -hmm. those logos, both Mm -hmm. familiar and unfamiliar. But again, just like big asterisk on any of these things of like, what are people feeling? How do we quantify this? Uh, This Brand personality scales from 1997, and we've done a lot of psychology since then. The whole so. internet has happened since then, and we've seen looked at apps and stuff. And like the two yeah. most blue apps are Facebook and Twitter, and those are the least competent apps, in my opinion. So yeah, they, because they don't now. have to be competent because you think they are because they're, they're blue. blue. Whereas That's Pinterest true. has to really focus on trying <laughs> to look competent because everybody just Im- implicitly they're very brave. Pinterest. Yeah. Very <laughs> exciting <laughs> Pinterest. Very exciting and <laughs> So if you want to ask the Science Couch your question, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we will tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Or you can join the SciShowTangents Patreon and ask us on our Discord. Thank you to at SpaceHikes, at Nicolese1, and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode. If you like this show... And you want to help us out, it's real easy to do that. First, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash tangents and become a patron. Get access to our newsletter and our bonus episodes. And don't forget, once we hit 700 patrons, we're going to do our Minions movie commentary. Whoa, guess so, how many patrons what? we have right now? 
699. We have 666. We got the nasty evil number. Well, we need at least one more patron. To join, not to quit, even though both would work, but join only. Either way. <laughs> <laughs> so please subscribe because we are tantalizingly close to discovering what's really inside all those minions. Is it piss? Yes. Second, you can <laughs> leave us a review wherever you listen. That's very helpful, and it helps us know what you like about the show. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell people about, about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Sam Schultz. Our associate producer is Eve Schmidt. Our editor is Seth Glitzman. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Julia Buzz-Bazio. Our editorial assistant is Debuki Chakravarty. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our executive producers are Nicole Sweeney and me, Hank Green. And, of course, we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire. But one more thing. Salt is great at dehydrating meats and just as great at preserving human poop. In a 2021 paper, researchers analyzed the DNA and proteins in four old poop samples from the Hallstatt salt mines in Austria. One from the Bronze Age, two from the Iron Age, and one from the Baroque period. One of those poops, which was estimated to be 2,700 years old, had an abundance of fungal proteins from two specific organisms, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is brewer's yeast used in beers, and Penicillium roqueforti, oh, which is, is the mold that gives- I was like, gives- nothing about this is blue. <laughs> Where's the blue? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it's there Sorry. in the mold that gives blue cheeses their color and funk. Oh. So this is the first molecular evidence for humans making and eating blue cheese in Iron Age Europe. We found it in poop. A long time ago. Why are they crapping in salt mines so much? What's going on there? Because they got to mine the salt. You go where you you are. I guess so. Especially if you had a lot of cheese. And that's like... (laughs) (laughs) You drank a lot of beer. You had a lot of cheese. Beer. And you you don't want to miss the opportunity. You know, if you hold it. (laughs) You could miss your chance.